Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you again. We, um, we're pretty excited to wake up this morning and find snow on the ground. Totally surprised and uh, excited about that. And uh, snow is a little bit like what we're going to be talking about today. And so uh, before I dig into this, I want us to uh, bow our heads and calm our hearts and uh, get focused on what we're going to be talking about today. So let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it's living and it's active, that it's sharp and it pierces right down to the very core of who we are and what our motivations are, what our desires are. Father, this morning as we uh, will be talking about holiness, I pray that you would give us eyes to see your holiness. And give us hearts to respond as we should. Pray for your work to be done. I pray for your spirit to move in our midst. To do your work, to work your desire. Here at Parkside. And in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week as we were talking from 1 Peter chapter 1. There were... Uh, quite a few things that I wanted to say that, that I really couldn't get to, and it wasn't because of a time crunch or anything. It was because it was a huge passage that was loaded with all manner of stuff. And um, there's one passage in there, verses uh, 14 through 16 of First Peter chapter 1, that uh, raised some questions in my mind uh, that, that I really wanted to answer and we didn't get a chance to do. And so I want to give you my sort of expanded paraphrase translation of first peter 1 verses 14 through 16 and that'll launch us into our discussion for the day so again this is my expanded version here verse 14 just like obedient children have learned not to give in to their childish desires you also must learn not to follow after the desires that used to be so characteristic of you before you became a child of god Since God, who called you to be his own, is holy in every part of his being, you also, instead of following after those old desires, must be holy in everything you do. Scripture also testifies to this same reason for you to be holy when God says, you shall be holy because I am holy. And that's an enormous three verses there. An enormous subject. And so I wanted to come back this week and fill in what we were talking about there. Those verses raise three questions in my mind that, uh, that I want us to talk about. And the first question is, how important is holiness really? The second one is, what does holiness mean? And thirdly, what does a holy person look like? So in answer to the first question... How important is holiness really? I just want to read a few verses. This is all by way of introduction. I want to read a few verses from the New Testament. Hebrews 12:14. Again, this is about the importance of holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Again, this is talking about the importance of holiness. Ephesians 1, 4. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. 2 Timothy 1, 9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling. And finally, Hebrews 12:10. Our fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So the answer to the first question, how important is it? It's crucial. It's crucial. The second question, what does holiness mean? We had a little pop quiz in our high school, Sunday school class about this. What does holiness mean? And uh, probably the best definition that I ran across is found in Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And he says, holiness is to be separated from sin and devoted to seeking the honor of God. So if you write down nothing else in this sermon, that would be a good spot to start right there. Holiness means to be separated from sin and devoted to seeking the honor of God. And if you, if you look throughout the Old Testament, what I did to find out what holiness means, aside from looking in Grudem, is I looked at the word holy in the Bible, and it occurs a lot. And some of the things that were called holy are not surprising, like the Holy Land. Well, why is it holy? Well, because it's to be set apart, separate from sin, separate from all of the corruption around it, separate from sin, and not only that, but devoted to seeking God's glory and God's honor. That's why it's called the holy land, because it has been separated and it has been devoted to something. So that's the holy land. A holy people, same thing. The nation of Israel was to be a holy people, and that translates in the New Testament talking about the church. We're to be a holy priesthood and a holy nation. A people called out to be separate from sin and to be devoted and committed and dedicated to seeking God's honor. Some more basic ideas, I thought that the community communicated it pretty clearly, was the idea of holy utensils that are found in the temple or in the tabernacle, like tongs or a shovel, a little, like a, uh, just a little shovel that was used to remove the coals from the altar. When, they, when those things were made, they were supposed to be made in a very special way, and then they were washed, and they were purified, and they were ritually cleansed to be separate from anything, any other influence on it. It was to be separate, to be pure, to be clean. And then, not only that, but they were supposed to be used for one task only, to serve the Lord. They were dedicated to serving the Lord. You didn't just take those tongs, and, uh, you know, go out and use them for something else. You didn't take the little shovel that's used for cleaning out the ashes from the altar and go shovel snow with it. It had one purpose, to serve the Lord. So that's the idea of holy. So that's the definition. It's to be separate from sin and to be dedicated to serving God, to seeking his honor. We're going to get to question three a little bit later, but probably the most vivid account in all of the Bible that talks about what holiness means is to be found in Isaiah chapter 6. So if you haven't done so, turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm going to read for us. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8 today. 
Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. I think the Lord's uh, doing something with regard to this passage. When uh, we showed up for Sunday school today, we were singing, and uh, Laurel Ann popped this verse up on the overhead or on the TV and uh, talked about it, read, read this passage here as, as sort of a meditation. She had no idea. I asked her later if she had been peeking at my notes or, or what, but she had no idea this is what we were going to be talking about. And she said that's what they've been talking about in their Bible study. This is a, a subject that, that the Lord is kind of bringing up again and again. And so I want us to focus this week on this vision of holiness that Isaiah had, this vision of holiness. And uh, point, point number one is vision of holiness, and the first subpoint is holy retribution. Now, why do I say retribution? Well, the, the passage starts, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died... I had this vision. Okay, so King Uzziah, probably, except for this passage, we don't know, you know, the average person here doesn't know a ton about him. And so I wondered, why did Isaiah put that in there? Why did he mention when it was? Was it just so we could find our place on a timeline? Or so that we could kind of know the surrounding events, just so we would know sort of in what context he's writing or whatever? And uh, so King Uzziah's ministry or his reign is found in Second Chronicles 26. And so we're not going to talk a lot about that, but I want to talk about Uzziah's life. Uzziah became king when he was 16, and he reigned for 52 years. That's a serious reign. That is one of the longest reigns ever, okay? And so he's, he's a very important king. He had a, a reign that lasted a long, long time. He was extremely influential. And the Bible says, when you read about him there in Second Chronicles 26... It says that he was a good king and he followed after the Lord like his dad had done. So not wholehearted commitment like David, but, but he was a good guy and he followed after the Lord as his father had done. And so he reigns for this whole huge amount of time. Well, during that time, he was a very powerful, conquering kind of king. Militarily, he was second only to King David. He was very powerful, very uh, victorious in battle. What he wanted to get done is what he got done on the battlefield. And so he was, he was righteous. He, he followed after God 
to a certain degree, to, to a pretty good degree. He was, a, he was a good king. He was a good king. He reigned a long time, and he had great military might. He was a significant kind of guy. Okay? But there towards the end of Second Chronicles 26, and talking about his reign, it says, when he grew strong, he also grew proud. And so what he decided he wanted to do was go into the temple himself. And he was going to offer incense on the altar of incense. Now, if you know about the temple, you know that not just anybody's allowed in. And not just anybody's allowed into any particular place. He was a king. He was not a priest. He was not from the line of Levi, and he himself certainly wasn't a priest. But he, he decided, you know what? For whatever reason, he grew proud in his heart. He was going to go and offer this incense himself. He was going to do that. So he took his incense and he marched right on into the temple and he went up to the altar of incense and he wasn't even allowed there. He walked up and he had his, in, his uh, censer in his hand and he was going to offer this offering and he was confronted by the high priest and 80 other priests. They came and confronted him and said, you can't do this. What are you doing? You may be king and you may be powerful and you may be great and all this, but you cannot be here and you cannot do this. And so they ran him off. Well, it's interesting because as he's being confronted, he's got a censer in his hand and he's just shaken. He, he gets so furious that the Lord strikes him with leprosy in his forehead right there in the midst of the temple. He gets struck with leprosy. Well, if you know anything else about the temple, you know that leprosy is not allowed. Any kind of disease or deformity or anything like that is not allowed in the temple. It's a separate kind of place. And so King Uzziah is right there in the temple where he shouldn't have been in the first place. And he gets struck with leprosy. So he's brought this kind of impurity into the temple. And so they run him off and he, he, he heads out of there and he's, he's a leper. He doesn't know what to do. And he ends up living the rest of his life. It's only a couple of years in a house all by himself, separated from his people, was never able to go back into the temple, was never able to function in a normal way as a king again. He was, he was exiled in his own city because of his disobedience. And that's going to give us a, a peek into what this vision means. What's going on here in Isaiah chapter 6? Because the temple is to be a holy place. Remember the, the definition of holiness? Separate from sin and dedicated for this service, right? Dedicated to seeking the, the glory and honor of the Lord. It's a very special place. And the only people who can be in there are people who are separated from sin and dedicated to that same purpose. And he wasn't separated. He wasn't ritually pure to go in there. And he wasn't dedicated to that purpose. He had a different job. So he completely broke the holiness commandments regarding the temple. And so he had, he had gone in and done that. So he had profaned the temple. The idea of profane or common or vulgar, those, those, those words are kind of synonyms, and they're the opposite of holiness. They're the opposite of being set apart and being sanctified. They mean to be common, to be what's spoken every day, what's done every day profanity is called profanity because it's you know just kind of on the street kind of language you wouldn't really use it in any kind of special situation it's just sort of what's out there profanity vulgarity if something's vulgar it just means that it's 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 kind of common and dirty and it's not there's nothing special about it i think we use it in the more negative context context now that's where it comes from if you ever heard of the latin vulgate the vulgate is the latin tran translation of scripture from the greek and the hebrew and it was made to be vulgar not as in swearing, but vulgar like common, so the common man could understand it. That's why it's called the Vulgate. And so that's what he had done to the temple. He had profaned the temple. An average guy, even though he was king, he wasn't supposed to be there. He wasn't prepared to be there. 
he had come in and then he had defiled it even worse when he was struck with leprosy. So that's the context. That's the background. So when Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, it instantly pulls up this picture of someone who despoiled the holiness of the temple and died in misery, died a leper, separated, not able to perform his function. So that was the king's life and then his pride and his end. And that's why I call it the holy retribution. Because when when he refers to the year that King Uzziah died, all those things come to mind and you see the judgment of God upon the king for for his uh, profaning the temple, for him coming in and despoiling the holiness of the temple. Well, let's look now at the holy setting. The holy setting. We've looked at the retribution already. Now, the holy setting. First of all, it says there, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. The Lord, it's capital L, probably in most of your Bibles, it's capital L, small O, small R, small D, right? If, if you'll look a little bit later at uh, verse 3, it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Probably most of yours have capital O, or capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, okay? It reads the same in English, and when we say it out loud, it sounds the same in English, but they're two different words in the Hebrew. One was the title of God, Adonai. It's his title, it's his position, it's the highest title that, that, that could be afforded to God. He was Adonai, he was, he was Lord in that sense. Lord that comes later, capitals, all capitals, it's going to be in verse 3, is his name, Yahweh. But to the Jews, it was such a holy name, they would write it, but they would never pronounce it. So you'll be reading along and you'll see the word Yahweh and you'll pronounce Adonai anyway. You'll pronounce Lord. And so that's why in our Bibles you have all capitals for that one. But uh, the, the one in verse 1 is capital L followed by small letters. So his title, he is lifted up. He is high. He has the highest rank. This is, this is giving as much credit and glory to him as they can in, in, in this title. And he sees him sitting on the throne. So, of course, the place of, of, uh, of dominion, okay? He's ruling from there. And he's in the temple, so it's not even just dominion over a particular country or in a city or something like that. It's in the temple, so it's dominion over the entire earth, over the entire created order, okay? So that's his reign. He's Adonai, he's Lord over all those things. And it says, I saw him high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe. Now, I, I looked on, on YouTube to see when uh, the, the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And um, they showed her marching along. She's, you know, she's coming down uh, the aisle there for the, the coronation. And she's got this big robe. And the train of it goes back. And there were three attendants on each side holding it up. That's how big it was. Okay, so there, there, there are six women holding up just the train of her robe. And the point is that the, the greater the robe the greater the, the magnificence and the glory of the person wearing the robe. Okay, so Queen Elizabeth II, right? That's, I mean, she's, she's queen. And uh, that's a pretty significant position she's got. And she's queen over a lot. She's a very significant person. Her glory in that sense is great. And so she's wearing this big robe with this big train carried by six women. Okay, and here we have a vision of the Lord. And the train of his robe filled the entire temple everywhere was evidence of his glory and his magnitude. It was huge. The train of his robe, meaning he was all glorious. He was, 
He was entirely magnificent, more than anyone else, more than any other sovereign anywhere. So that's the, that's the holy setting. Then we have the holy attendants. We have the holy attendants. We have these seraphim that are flying around. They have six wings. It says they use two of these wings to cover their faces. They use two of the wings to cover their feet. And they use two of them to fly. Now, if you remember back the story of Moses. And when uh, Moses, back in Sinai, Exodus 33, wanted to see God. He was getting to know God more and more and was serving him. And, and he got to the point where he, he just wanted to see God's face. And God said, if I show you my face, you'll die. So he made a little cleft in the rock and stuck him in there. And, and then he walked by. And then, and then Moses, in a sense, was able to look at God's back. Okay, is kind of the way it's pictured for us. But even Moses was not able to look at the face of God lest he die. You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. God says in Exodus 33. The problem isn't a limitation we have with our eyes. It's not like our eyes can't bear that much light or something. The problem is in our soul. The problem is that we are not set apart in that sense. That we have sin. We have, we've been despoiled. We've been made, we make ourselves common. We, we are not separated. We are not dedicated the way we're supposed to be. And so for us to look fully on God's face, on his glory, would, would burn us to a crisp. We can't do that. We can't do that. And so here we have a picture of these angels who are not spoiled. They don't have the sin in their heart like we do. But even they are pictured with their faces covered because God's glory is even too much for them to look at. It's too much for them. So they they cover their faces with two wings. They use two other wings to cover their feet. Now, I wondered what in the world was going on with feet. You know, were their feet dirty? Well, they're angels, so their feet are probably clean. But again, if you think back to Moses, when Moses was at the burning bush, what did God say to him? Take off your sandals. You're on holy ground, right? There's something very special about being in God's presence with relation to our feet. And I wondered about that and I read about that and I'm not really certain, but here's, here's what seems to be the picture. Feet are very practical things, but they're not really beautiful things. They're not really holy things, are they? I mean, we kind of use them to get around and they get dirty a lot because we have to walk through stuff. In Russia... If you show someone the sole of your foot, if you, if you sit cross-legged and, and you know, put, your, put your one leg up on your other knee and show them the sole of your, show, sole of their, of your foot, that's an insult. It's like showing them the dirt that you just walked in and the stuff you stepped on in the road and that's what I think of you kind of thing. And so that took some getting used to because I sit like that a lot. <laughs> but there's something dirty about feet, not, not because there's anything wrong and we have to have them, right? We've got to get from one place to another. We've got to get around. So we use our feet. No big deal. And even in the New Testament, you have Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So there's a recognition that feet are, there's something uh, not separate. They're not, they're not beautiful. They get used for very common use. Very common use, right? We walk. <laughs> we step through stuff. And so we have this picture of these seraphim. They've, they've got their two wings covering their faces, and they've got two wings covering their feet. So even these seraphim who are, they're flying, first of all, so they don't really need their feet. But the picture is that they are covering what is common on them, what is, what is profane on them in a sense. What's, what gets the most base, basic usage is our feet. And so they've got them covered. So even these holy angels have their feet covered. And then they've got two other wings that they're using to fly, to fly in his presence. So that's, those are the holy attendants. And I think that's pretty interesting because they are holy, and yet they have this response 
to God's glory, to God's holiness. And then, fourthly, the holy chorus. And that's them shouting back and forth at one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And repetition is uh, one of the highest forms of emphasis that they have in the Hebrew language. For us, particularly for, you know, for people under 20 probably, you're, you know, when you're texting and you want to emphasize something a lot, you either use a zillion exclamation points or you do everything in all caps, right? That's like shouting, right? Well, so we use those when we write, when we email something or, you know, if we actually pick up a pen occasionally and make marks on a paper like we used to, if we do that, we can do underlining or we can uh, sometimes we'll, you know, we'll do stuff in italics or, uh, you know, we'll do things in bold or exclamation point. We have ways of emphasizing things. Well, in Hebrew, they use those kind of things too, probably not all caps in texting, but they, they, they use those sorts of things too. But one of the greatest ones that they used was repetition. And if you think of Jesus, when Jesus taught, a lot of times he said, truly, truly, I say to you, and then he would tell, some, tell him something. Well, Why did he say it twice? Well, because he was emphasizing it. He was underlining it and making it bold italic kind of thing. So he, and that's only twice. That's only two repetitions. Did you know where it says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts? That's the superlative. That means the absolute holiest possible. It's the absolute highest way to emphasize something in the Hebrew language is to repeat it three times. Do you know what other attributes of God are repeated three times in the Bible? Nothing. Not one. It doesn't say God is love, love, love. Or anything else. No other examples. God is mercy, mercy, mercy. Or God is judge, judge, judge. It doesn't say that. But he is holy, holy, holy. And this isn't the only place. Revelation refers back to this. And Revelation says the same thing says that he is holy, holy, holy. So that's a huge emphasis. So that's what these angels are shouting back and forth at each other. The superlative, to the highest degree, God is holy. Now, think back to the context. What did verse 1 say? In the year that King Uzziah died, the guy who profaned the temple, the guy who made it common, the guy who thought he could walk in off the street in his fancy get-up because he was king, and offer incense on the altar. You can't do that. You just can't do that. He couldn't do that. And that's what he did. He defiled the holiness of the temple. And here we have the angels flying around saying, He is holy, holy, holy. To the highest degree, God is holy. So let's bear that in mind as as we think about King Uzziah and the situation going on here. Now let's look at the response to holiness. We have a vision of holiness. Now let's look at the response to holiness. Well, the first response we already have, and that's, that's the, the uh, angelic response, but I, I want to move on and talk about the environmental response. I couldn't think of a better word. <laughs> so environmental. If you can think of a better one, go ahead and write it down. But what happens? As, as these angels are shouting back and forth, stuff starts to happen, right? The, it says the... the um, I want to get it right here. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. So the ground starts to shake. The foundation of this great and mighty temple starts to shake. And not only that, but smoke fills the air. Right? The, the, the environment responds to the holiness of God. And so I think about me. I think about you know the, how many times I've read this passage before. Or you read in the Psalms. You read anywhere else that talks about the holiness of God. And I think, you know, my heart doesn't respond 
so often. And I think here, an inanimate object, a temple, the foundation, the most stable and inanimate part of a temple is responding to the holiness of God. That's a big deal. So what's wrong with my heart? What's wrong with my heart? And smoke fills the air. Well, I, I wondered what smoke was about in the Bible, and so I looked that up too. And, and it seems to have something to do with possibly the anger of God. It says there's a, a Hebrew saying that talks about s- smoke coming from God's nostrils <laughs> when God's really, really angry. I don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, but it also it also talks about the it's it's present when the mystery of God or even the power of God the might of God is is present. There's smoke filling the air, and so this idea of the magnificence of God it's a it's a it's a mysterious it's a powerful uh, effect that's going on. This environmental response that's happening. So next, let's look at the human response. Let's look at what, what Isaiah how he responds. Well, the first response is that he has a true knowledge of God. So when Isaiah sees this vision, he has a true knowledge of God. He gets a picture in his mind of who God really is and what his holiness is really like, what his glory is really like. What he sees is not himself bigger, stronger, and faster. That's not what he sees. And I think often we make God to be like us but just bigger and stronger and faster and and better than us. He's bigger and better than us. And what Isaiah sees is not that. God is wholly other. W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, entirely, completely other. He's not like me. God has revealed himself to Isaiah on his own terms, on God's own terms. That's the first human response is, Isaiah has a true knowledge of God. And his second human response is that he has a true knowledge of self. When Isaiah is confronted with the holy and almighty God, he's made very aware of his own sin. He's made aware that he is the opposite of holy. He is profane. He's vulgar. He's sinful. He's not set apart for God's glory. He's hopelessly stained by the muck and the mire of this world. He comes to know himself as he truly is, and his response is, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm destroyed. Woe is me. Cursed am I in comparison to God. He sees clearly what he deserves from God. And think about it. If if the seraphim are uncomfortable showing their feet that have never been dirty, that have never been stained, How uncomfortable must he have felt in God's presence, knowing that he's stained all the way through? That is discomfort. Thirdly, human response is true confession of sin. The prophet sees no point in hiding his sin anymore. He he begins immediately to confess his sin and to lament the situation of his soul. He's a sinner, and he's just seen God, and he expects that he's going to be destroyed. Woe is me. Woe is me. So true confession of sin. Point number three, an atonement for unholiness. 
This is where the good news starts, because to this point, it hasn't been so good for Isaiah. An atonement for unholiness. First of all, it's provided by God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. God was the one. God dispatched a seraphim, uh, one of the seraphs, to go and grab that coal off of the altar and bring it to him and take care of this atonement to put it on his lips. Now, what I love about this is that an angel is not some fat little baby with wings who's pink floating in the clouds, okay? We have this idea of angels as those sorts of things. Angels were tough. They were warriors, all right? And this holy, powerful, mighty angel with tough hands still uses tongs to grab this coal that he grabs. It's that hot. The, tong- the, the coal is that hot that he has to have tongs to do that. I think that's pretty tough. I used to do road construction, and we worked a lot with hot stuff. And after a while, you get to where you can just grab hot things, no problem. I worked at Starbucks. That's the other end of the spectrum. But you also work with hot stuff. I, I knew a guy working at Starbucks who would actually wash his fingers off in water just below boiling temperature. The water that comes right out of the, right out of the machine, he would just wash his fingers off. Didn't even bother him. His hands were that tough. Well, that's just a guy who works at Starbucks. Think about an angel. And here's something so hot, he has to get some tongs and, and hold that thing because it's so hot, right? And carries it over. But the atonement is provided by God. And secondly, it's applied to sin. Isaiah said that his sin has to do with his mouth. It has to do with the way he talks, the things he says. He's vulgar in his language and lives among a people of unclean lips. So the seraph applies that coal directly to his lips. God works in Isaiah's life in exactly the place of his weakness. He comes and he brings that coal and applies it to his place of weakness, his place of sin. So it's provided by God, it's applied to sin, and what does it do? Well, praise the Lord, it removes guilt. It removes guilt. When that's all done and his lips are seared and fried, and, you know, lips are sensitive. Lips are sensitive things. And here this coal, it's too hot for an angel to touch, has been put right on his mouth. That's painful. But the result is awesome. The result is that it removes his guilt. The angel tells him that his guilt has been taken away because the coal touched his lips. His sin has been atoned for. It's been paid for. It's been dealt with. It's been put away. So this atonement for unholiness is provided by God. It's applied to sin. It removes guilt and it prepares the messenger. Notice that God is still standing in, that Isaiah is still standing in God's presence. He's still there after this happens. He's able to survive. He's been made able to be in the presence of a holy God because of this atonement that's happened. But now his response is different. When God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Instead of groveling on the ground now, Isaiah speaks. He has the boldness to speak in God's presence now. Something's changed. He wants to serve God and he wants to go for him. He's eager to be useful to God. That's different than it was just a moment ago where he was saying, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm hopeless. There is no hope for me. I have no chance. And then atonement is made 
And all of a sudden, in the same holy God's presence, he's able to say, I'll go. I'll I'll go do it. He's eager to serve. Something's changed. He's been prepared to be a messenger. He's been had his sins forgiven, and now he's fit for the presence of the holy king on the throne. Isaiah himself has been separated from sin by this burning on his lips. And he's been devoted to seeking the Lord's honor. God's atonement for his sin has prepared the way for Isaiah to be God's messenger, that he will be. And he'll be the greatest prophet to write. So we started looking at three questions about holiness when we started this journey back in 1 Peter 1. Three questions. The first question was, how important is holiness? So as a reminder, I want to read for you Hebrews 12:14 again. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The answer, how important is it? Is that it's very important. It says here that without that holiness, no one will see the Lord. It's crucial. Second question regarding um, what holiness means. Well, it means to be separated from sin and dedicated to service to the Lord, dedicated to seeking his honor and his glory. So the third question, which we're just getting to now is, what does a holy person look like? Well, I want to read just a quick list here. We read through this at our our small group this week. It was just, just men this week. And we only got three or four points in because we were pretty well convicted and, and uh, stopped in our tracks. But I, I want to read this list to you. What is a holy person or what does a holy person look like? A holy person has the habit of loving what God loves and hating what God hates. That's our habit. That's norm for us. That's what we do. A holy person works to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. That seems so basic. That seems so basic. Yeah, I I know the commandments. I think I'll keep them. That's a good idea. But how often do we have that thought? How many days do we go through where it never occurs to us to to think through every possible way we can obey God or to shun every known sin? How often does it happen that we just skip that? A holy person never does. A holy person strives to be like the Lord Jesus Christ in forgiving others, in selflessness, in love, in humility. A holy person follows after meekness. Meekness. Lowliness. A holy person follows after self-control and self-denial. Self-control and self-denial. A holy person follows after a spirit of mercy and compassion toward others. A holy person follows after purity of heart. A holy person fears God. A holy person follows after humility. So how how you doing? I've got two more left. And it's not a fun list to read. Because I compare myself to that and I think, I feel a little bit like Isaiah before the burning coal. 
A holy person follows after faithfulness in all the duties and relations in life. Faithfulness. A holy person follows after spiritual mindedness. I'm not so engrossed with this world that I can't think about the spirit, that I can't think about spiritual life, that I can't think about biblical truth, that I can't think about God, that I can't think about obedience to him. A holy person follows after spiritual mindedness. So in closing, after reading that list and after what we've learned about holiness from Isaiah 6, the question is a short one. Are you holy? I asked that question of myself a lot this week, and it's a painful one to answer. But it's legitimate. We're supposed to strive after the holiness without which no one will see God. That sounds huge to me. Sounds huge. So the question is, are you holy? Now, some of you right now are thinking, God seems pretty holy. It seems pretty separate. And you're feeling a little bit like Isaiah when he was first presented with this vision. He's looking at the temple and he's looking at these seraphim, these angels, who are themselves holy and pure. But in comparison to God, they covered their faces and they covered their feet. That was their response to the holiness. And you're looking at that and you're thinking, you know, I'm nothing like those angels. And Isaiah was a pretty holy guy anyway. I've got serious problems. In the presence of a holy God, I stand no chance. I stand no chance. And so that's where the good news comes in. Because just like in this story where a hot coal was provided by God and applied right to that sin, to atone for sin, in the same way, God sent Jesus to atone for our sin. Because the problem is we all fall short. We are all unholy. And we all stand no chance in God's presence. No chance. And so Jesus was sent so that he could take our sin and our guilt and the punishment we deserve on himself. And then he was hung on the cross to pay for it, to pay the penalty for our sin. He actually died. He died the death that that we should have died. But God wasn't done. He raised him from the dead on the third day and he ascended back to the Father. He was victorious over our unholiness. He was victorious over death. He was victorious over sin. And he says that if you will believe in him, if you will accept that gift that he offers of atonement, that he he will make you pure and he'll make you ready and fit for the kingdom of God. And you can be like Isaiah in God's presence, ready to serve, ready to be in his presence, not fearful and woe is me, but having your sin taken care of. And so that is offered to you. That's what God offers to you. And so if, if, you've, if you've never heard that before, or if you didn't know that was the case, or if you're just now struck with your own unholiness and your own unworthiness to be in God's presence, then believe in Jesus. Believe in the gift that he offered, the atonement that he offers, and he will apply that to your life and make you fit to be in his presence. That's the gift. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And that's the offer 
Second question. So are you holy? That was the first one. The second one, do you think you feel the importance of holiness as much as you should? This question was tough for me too. Talk to Isaiah about cheap grace, about flippancy towards a holy God. He knew better. He had stood there and he had trembled in his boots and he had fallen on his face and he had known holiness is important. Holiness is crucial to be in God's presence. It's crucial. It's crucial in our lives to practically live out what's been done already positionally. You see, when when that coal is applied to our lives, when the atonement is applied to our lives, we have been positionally made holy. We used to be unholy and excluded from God's presence. But when that atonement is applied, when we trust in Christ, we receive that gift, we are made positionally holy. But the Bible says we're also supposed to practically work out in our lives what holiness looks like. It's supposed to show itself in our behavior. And so my question is, do you think that's as important as you really should think it is? And I confess that, for me, no. I hadn't been giving holiness the attention and the focus that that I should. Well, so that brings us to the Lord's table. The Lord's table is just a picture of this atonement that we've talked about. The bread is a picture of Christ's body being, being broken being hung on a cross, and him being killed, offering himself up for atonement for us. And the blood is a picture of the blood that he shed, the life that he let go, so that we could have this atonement, so that we could be made right before him. That's what the Lord's table is about. And so if the men will come forward, we're going to celebrate this now.